0: star wars one while i was there and the line was big enough i never actually got close enough to get there so yeah definitely seeing the need for a lot more insulation and sound control for these rooms right now
1: well i mean it doesn't really pick up too much on the mic if that makes you feel any better oh that's
0: good yeah that's good um so, all right, you want my new bad dad joke that I got just to start things going, start, start things off?
1: Yeah. These are so painful, Ben.
0: Don't, <laughs> don't ask for it. Okay. So, I, I went to see a uh, Spanish-speaking magician uh-huh. last week. He put a rabbit in the house. He waved his wand and he said, uno dos, and the rabbit vanished without a trace. <laughs> <laughs> and hello, and welcome to Red Raccoon Radio,
1: your source for tabletop gaming news in Bloomington, Illinois, and beyond. I can hear the groan during your intro. It's just inside of me, and it's non-stop. Uh, anyways, hi, I'm your host, John, and joining me today is... This is Jamie. And it's finally happening. I've talked about this on the podcast multiple times. I've been very excited. We have our first real guest, and that is Ben Rossett. Say hello, Ben.
2: Hello, it's nice to be here.
1: We are so glad that you are, and that you sit so close to the mic and, and are using the appropriate function. I'm just gonna say you get praised for that I try to. I try to impress,
0: you know. You're doing a great job <laughs> Thank already. you very much. Wow, I feel slighted right off the bat in the
1: just, podcast. Just a little called out, Jamie, that's all. Uh, anyways, so yes, welcome to our podcast. And obviously this is going to be kind of a super special episode because we do have Ben joining, but Ben wanted to be a part of what we normally do. So Jamie, I'm gonna ask the question I ask every week: How was the game store this week?
0: Interesting. How we so? We had well, so one of the highest temperature heat waves that to hit Illinois in a long time. I don't know of recorded history, but a very very long time hit this week, and our air conditioning was running so hard that the te- and some but some of the pipes go through uh, soffits above the drop ceiling and the hot air plus cold air in those pipes created sweating issues and we had water leak issues where the pipes were sweating down into the store. So interesting would be a good word. On Thursday morning I came in and somebody's like, hey the light, one of the lights in the break room's not on. Went in there, realized there was water dripping out of that light. They're all flat LED panels. And the the dripping from the pipes had perfectly fallen right down and went right down into where the uh, electrical is plugged into the light and shorted the light out. And so far, we've lost four panels from the sweating. We've got a bunch of ceiling tiles we're going to have to get replaced. But the... The only shining, the silver lining on this is we went back and looked at the blueprints and all those pipes were supposed to have been insulated and they're not. So the contractor for our HVAC company came over and he looked at the pipes and he looked at the blueprint and he said some words that we're not going to repeat on the podcast right now because he realized that uh, a mistake had been made and they are absolutely owning the fact that they made a mistake and they're coming and fixing everything, so.
1: Jamie, how do you feel that ever since you opened the store, your automatic rival has been water for some reason?
0: Mother Nature (laughs) and water win. And they, you know, water will find every crack of everything. So, after uh, the leaking we had from that crazy sideways rainstorm we had, Three weeks ago now, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been working trying to get quotes to get uh, companies in to help us abate the water. So this week, it was all about companies to look at redoing some of the flashing where the roof meets the walls, obviously up on the top of the building, because I got a guy coming in. I got quotes for tuck pointing around the base of the building where the building meets the city sidewalk. And that contractor is a friend of mine who said, I can tuck point this, but if the water gets in at the top, everything I do down here is completely useless. So, yeah, this has been another water week, and I'm getting tired of water weeks. That's fair. That's fair. It seems Other to Other than happy. that, the rest of it was great. You know, we, we had a really good week, though, because it was so hot. Everybody came in and played games. We did some Lorcana learn-the-plays. We did... Uh, we had great turnout for a lot of our events. Our Friday night uh, 40K group for Warhammer 40K was, I think there was 19 of them here. And it's been just, its the rest of the week was great. Everything about it was great, except for those sweating pipes.
1: Now, Ben, you run a uh, board game development club here at the store. How was it having your first meeting actually here within the new area?
2: I don't know exactly Kind of run the. Oh, you know, fair the enough. Yeah, You're part yeah, of it, yes. Yeah, definitely a part of it. There's local designers that yes. uh, want to get together and play test each other's games. Um, so this, this is my first time in here at the new store on Tuesday. Uh, yeah, it was great. It's just, it's nice. It's bright down here. There's just, more people, more energy. You can kind of see what's going on in the room. And so it was, yeah, it was great to be great to be down here for my first, first time in the
0: new space. And the local playtester group happens the fourth Tuesday of every month. You don't have to be a designer to come because sometimes the designers just need people who are willing to try. Sometimes the games are concepts, right? I, I played one with you, Ben. Uh, it was a, a diving, a scuba diving game. And that was little things glued to pieces of cardboard, like you'd cut out of a box, <laughs> right? So it's 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 serious concept prototyping stuff, but sometimes they just need players.
2: Play testers are the lifeblood of game designers. So we meet on the, thanks, this is why I'm not a marketing person, I didn't even mention the date or time that we meet, but <laughs> the fourth Tuesday yeah, of each month, I think 6pm yeah. uh, here at the store, and so if you want to test some new board games that have not even come out yet... Please come by. Designers would be happy to have you uh, play test and give feedback.
0: And everyone I've played so far, they all have a little sheet of this is the feedback that they're looking for. Help us. You know, What did you think about the concept? What about the movement? What about this? And at the early stages, it's all about the mechanics and the concept. And then later, we start to actually get towards real prototypes. And then there's comments about art and things of that nature. But that's, that's much further into the development, right? Yeah, I mean,
2: uh, art is like, that's once the game is done. I mean, I always tell new designers, any new designers out there listening, don't spend too much time or money on art for your prototypes because 90% of what you do is going to change between now and the next playtest anyway. Uh, So yeah, I mean, uh, early on, it's just what was fun about the game, what was not fun about the game, you know, what kept your interest, what didn't keep your interest. Just simple questions like that are super helpful at the beginning of the design process.
1: Now, Ben, you are uniquely uh, equipped to talk about what the development process really needs because you've done it a few times, I think, Correct.
2: Uh, Yeah, in terms of my games that I've designed, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. definitely have gone gone through the process several times.
1: So according to BBG, which I have up right now, you have done the Search for Planet X, which is an infamous game between Jamie and I that (laughs) I rub in his face any chance I get because it's the one game I can beat him at. Uh, Search for Lost Species, which uh, he actually won that one by one point, and we need to get a second game on that on the table because I want to keep a trend going if I can. Uh, Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, Between Two Cities, Between Two Cities Capitals, Brewcrafters, Brewcrafters Travel Card Game, Mars Needs Mechanics, Homebrewers, Keys to the Kingdom, which, by the way, the, the idea between that and how that was executed. We actually talked about that ad nauseum on the podcast for one episode of just yeah. the innovative way that that kind of opens up a brand new world as people explore it. So, Oh, thank you. Uh, uh, First in Flight and Fromage. Mm-hmm. That is all within your repertoire. Out of those games, which do you think holds your heart the most?
2: I think uh, of the games that are already out and published, I think The Search for Planet X. Um, it was... Uh, just the the inspiration to make that game was when I heard about the real world search for Planet X that's really happening in astronomy right now, hmm. uh, and I love to design games based on real world systems, and so when I heard about that, I immediately thought, oh, I have to make a board game about this, and the fact that it's, it's you know it's done quite well, uh, and uh, just. Super happy about that and the feedback that it's gotten, and I, I just love that I was able to bring the real-life search for Planet X. But they've been looking for it for, like, 40 form.
0: years at this point, right? 40, 50 years, because they know, all we know is there are gravitational anomalies that are right. being caused by something. Something. And right. we, we don't know what that something is or where that something is. We just know there's something out there that we have not yet found
2: the uh right the correct the I believe the current theory is that uh there is a massive planet that's so far away from us that we haven't been able to see it yet because so little sunlight reflects off of it uh that must be causing gravitational disturbances in the outer solar system. it's so cool
0: yeah well and and I saw something the other day so we we think it's outside of pluto's orbit mm-hmm. and I saw something the other day that Pluto has cr- completed its first orbit around the sun since we discovered Pluto. Because it takes a 100 and something years to make one orbit around the sun and it has completed the first orbit since we since the first time we saw Pluto. So
2: Pluto's one now as far as we're concerned. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. In our human centric yeah. view of the universe, right? It's finally made it. Wow.
0: <laughs> yeah. What a no.
1: what a Cinderella story. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Uh, You know, and and so I'm going to, I'll gush for just a second, too, because Ben probably won't. He says that uh, Search for Planet X has done well. It's actually 92, number 92 as of this morning on Board Game Geek's top 100 board games of all time.
1: All time. Not just this year, not just this decade, all time. That's amazing. All right.
0: It, and it's number Since 60. you mentioned it, it is pretty amazing, so <laughs> thanks, thanks for bringing it up. I appreciate it. So, what was it like when you realized that you had slipped into the 100, because you didn't start off in the 100, the game slowly, as it built momentum, yeah. kept moving up up the ranks, so what was it like when you discovered that you had moved into the top 100?
2: It was, you know, could see it coming for a little while, right? Uh, it's like the little engine that could, is it going to make it, is it going to make it, it's at 150, <laughs> it's at 140, it's at 130? Uh, and it made it into the top one hundred this past March. Uh, it was it was one of my probably my biggest moment so far as a game designer in terms of just a moment where you just feel wow I can't believe that this is this has happened. And That's so cool. it was it was a really cool moment. It was validating in some respects. You know, I think most board game designers will tell you from time to time they have that uh, you know fear of that they're not really good at this and you know that uh, uh what uh,
0: what why do i to keep doing this what's it
2: called when you uh, uh imposter syndrome sorry oh, is the word that I'm looking yeah. for, right yep. you know and uh, i have
0: that all the time about running this game store <laughs> i'll be honest
2: and uh but so it was a little bit of a, a validation and it was just it's just amazing that on the first page of bgg there there's there's my game and yeah couldn't be more thrilled
1: well it's well deserved for those of you that haven't gotten a chance to play uh, search for planet x or your follow-up game which i want to talk about a little bit later which is search for lost species it's very much in my mind it is advanced clue it is not only are you trying to figure things out by process of elimination but also you have to have these logical elements to it whenever you were creating the game was that kind of a mentality that you had, or was it more, it just kind of naturally started flowing in that direction as you had that concept for this?
2: For both of the Search 4 games, and Search of Planet X came first, so when I start a new design, and again, I like to design games based on real-world systems that are connected to, to the real world somehow, uh, and I think, okay, well, so this is the theme, right, is trying to find a new planet. So. What kind of game mechanics would make sense for that? Well, right away, logic deduction, right? Just it right. just makes sense that yep. your astronomers are trying to find a new planet. How are they doing it? They're doing it based on obviously mathematical models and modeling, but they're also just thinking through what is what is the logic of where I should be looking for this thing based on the data that I'm getting. So, um, so I knew I wanted it to be a logic deduction game and that's all i really had right is the theme and logic deduction um and this one actually bounced around in my head for about a year i think until i finally just clicked right one morning you wake up an idea just gels together um and then the game came together quite quickly actually for how long these things usually take uh at that point but um yeah just logic deduction just made sense right for, for a game where you're looking for a new planet. Now, Absolutely. I always
0: described it to people as those logic deduction puzzles that we got given in, in grade school and high school where, you know, uh, if Bobby was with Susie on Tuesday night, it, Bobby couldn't have been with, you know, Jenny on Tuesday night. So you put the X there to say the times that he couldn't be there. You put the circle in where you're like, okay, he was definitely doing this thing right here. That's how I've always described it. And when Ben, we were talking this week, and you actually called it that it's closer to something like Sudoku mm-hmm. than, than those logic puzzles, too. And I could see that as well. And then after we were talking about it, I was uh, looking at some stuff on BGG for Search for Planet X. One, I didn't realize how many nominations it had for Game of the Year from various places like uh, Dice Tower, the Golden Geek Awards, and places like that, too. But I watched a video review from Shut Up and Sit Down, which is one of the yeah. places I like to. And he actually in that video said this game is like playing Sudoku with multiple people at the same time. And I was just like, Well, alrighty then. Yeah. Here we go. Competitive,
2: uh, competitive Sudoku. Yeah. Now ben, with the
1: theme. I, I want to kind of throw a, a curveball at you because we tried to prepare you a little bit, but this question kind of popped in my mind because, in order, to, I would assume to create uh, a lot of randomness to your games, you've added the app element your game, where you need to download a product in order to be able to play that. Was that something that you had from the very beginning, or was that as you progressed through playthrough, realized there wasn't an easy way to build this mechanic in?
2: I I felt like, so, right, both of the Search for Games, it's a free app that you can download from the App Store. Um, One of my favorite games, I haven't played it much lately, is Alchemist by CGE. Hmm. And so when I was designing Search for Planet X, also in the back of my head, I was like, well, I want to take Alchemist is like a three hour game that features logic deduction, but also has this whole worker placement thing built around it. And I really wanted to just streamline that and say, what if we stripped away all the rest of it and just had the focus be on the logic deduction? Uh, So that was kind of my model for the gameplay. And Alchemist uses an app to hide information and randomize the game every time so that you get a different logic puzzle every time you play. Just like every time you do a Sudoku puzzle, it's going to be a different puzzle for you to finish. and so we always knew, I say we, Matthew O'Malley is my co-designer, we always knew that we wanted an app for this, just like Alchemist uses an app to uh, to run that game. Uh, and so uh, actually, Matthew has a background in coding, and so he put together a very simple initial version of the app that we could use to do playtesting, which was amazing. Interesting. And then the publisher, once they picked up the game, made a more, uh, you know, Professional or official, they made version it more robust
1: app. for it, right? right, with the visuals and things like. Right, that.
2: but we didn't want anyone to have to GM the game, right? We didn't want to have have somebody not play in order like for the Like the moderator and werewolf or something who knows right. what's going on. Right, we didn't want to have to have a moderator and werewolf. We wanted everybody at the table to be able to play, and so that's what the app does: is it it hides and gives secret information to players so that everybody at the table can play the game.
0: And, and Werewolf has done realized that the moderator was an issue too. That's why one night Ultimate Werewolf uses an app as the moderator, right? Because that's you right. don't always have enough people to have a dedicated moderator.
1: Yeah, right. And that's a game I try and push every single time I work a staff. Meet, I mean, I work at the store because I just feel like that's one of the cleanest ways to enjoy a game. Is where everybody's mm-hmm. just on that even playing field, and oftentimes party games, you don't sometimes get that. So.
0: Yeah. Now, here's a question for you. You mentioned Matthew as a co-designer. Mm-hmm. How did that relationship start where you guys realized that you worked well together? Because I think it's like four or five games you've done together now?
2: Yeah, we have. Uh, I used to live in Washington, D.C., and that's where Matthew lives, so we met in a design group out there. Okay. Uh, and we liked each other's kind of design sensibilities and the types of games that each other designs. Uh, and Matthew has this product that he does for a different company called Knot Dice. Not sure if you're familiar with Knot Dice. Oh. They're kind of they're like uh, dice that have Celtic knot designs into them and the okay. designs on the dice go all the way over the edge so that if you put the dice together they make these Celtic knot designs. It's kind of a game, it's kind of a puzzle, it's kind of just a table toy, something to have on your coffee table. Um, he's run a couple kickstarters for it and I was uh, out in Las Vegas for a friend's uh, wedding. this was like 10 years ago and I was walking through uh, C- the gardens of Caesar's Palace, the big oh, no. casino out there. and they have all these these curated gardens right and, and the, 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 you know the bushes and the landscaping all kinds of comes together and goes in and out of each other almost like a big Celtic knot, right? It's like kind of how the uh, the gardens are set up there. And so I had this idea for a tile laying game about making kind of Roman gardens. And I thought, oh, Matthew did those knot dice. He knows how things connect together. He knows how and to work that art. About yeah. It. So I asked him to kind of help me with this design. And that design is what ended up being between two cities mm-hmm. that we worked on together. Oh, interesting. And that was our first design together. Um, obviously, the theme changed from Roman gardens to city uh, building. Um, but so. It was a good experience, you know, two heads are better than one. And so we have done a bunch of
1: games together since then. It's very cool. So, you know, obviously you're active within the board game community here. As a person who uh, is just going to start out, because this is what probably our audience are wanting to ask, someone's just starting out today. What are the tips and tricks you're giving them to get started? What are you going to tell them to say, hey, if you want to make sure you get as much success as possible, these are the things I recommend?
2: Uh, To be a a board game designer, uh, first I would say design what you love. So if you love games about zombies, design a game about zombies. If you don't, then don't design a game about zombies just because you think it might be a hot theme or topic right now.
0: So this is kind of like Dwiggy's working on a game about disc golf because he loves loves disc disc golf. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Design, do what you love. Design what you love because you're going to have to play test this thing A bunch. And so you better like playing the game that you're designing. And so design it around a topic that you really like. That's number one. I always Uh, wondered
0: if it was like, I I used to hear all these stories because Volition is a video game company in Champaign and they made like Saints Row and some other games. And I always wondered if the QA people that were just beating on this game over and over again to find every bug in the code just absolutely hated it by the time they got to the end.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'll speak f- from the board game and tabletop process. Uh, and that's my second thing is you have to enjoy the design and the development part of it. There's the initial creative outburst, which is the initial design. But once it gets to the table, the first thing you're going to find out is that almost everything is wrong with it and needs to be changed. <laughs> and so you have to embrace and enjoy that process of iteration and that process of change and that slow, almost evolutionary type of slow incremental change over and over until you get to something that is worthy of being a published board game. So both to be successful, you have to like both parts of it, the initial creative design and
1: then the iterative slow improvement of the development process. Have you ever... Was it hard to start accepting criticism of something that you were passionate about? Or was that just kind of in the back of your head like, this is If I want to make it better, I have to just accept this criticism.
2: It's still hard. as a, I mean, I've been designing games for 15 years, and it's still hard. I still take it way too personally when somebody <laughs> says they don't like a design. And that is really important. I'm glad you brought that up, is not to take it personally. If somebody... Uh, I have written on my whiteboard at home, feedback is a gift. Say thank you. And oh. I have to remind myself of that all the time, because... As a human being, I get naturally defensive when somebody says they don't like something that I made. And so uh, you you can't take it personally. They're not saying something bad about you as a person. Uh, and they're trying to be helpful. And feedback really is a gift. Uh, and so you over and over and over got to remind yourself, don't take it personally. You know, Say thank you. Don't argue with somebody who's <laughs> trying to give you an idea for a game. Um, and, uh, yeah, it is difficult. It's
0: very difficult. So my, my, my feedback story, I don't know if I've ever told you this or not. I was at Gen Con. And Gen Con, um, they used to do, if you bought a trade day pass to go as a retailer and you did, you did this stuff on Wednesday before Gen Con opened, on Thursday they would let media types and retailers in one hour early to the vendor hall. So I was in there, and I was just kind of wandering around, and I was over near the CMON booth. Uh, everybody on this podcast knows I'm a big Zombicide fan, so I'm over there. Huge. And um, I get asked if I want to sit down and demo a, a brand new game that's not even been released yet. And I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? you know? And I sit down at the table, and I get a demo of this whole game, and it's Rising Suns, is what the game became and I'm talking and they're asking for feedback and I was really not feeling the game at that point, right? And I said, well, this asymmetric unit of movement and everything, I'm just not feeling it and I have all this stuff and I was just kind of going on and on about all the stuff that I didn't like about the game and from a retailer perspective. And then the, the designer kind of moved away and walked away and then somebody else was like, wow, that's kind of ballsy to, cr- to criticize Eric Lang's games to his face. And I was just like, "Who's Eric Lang?" Right? Like that's Eric Lang. He's done all these other games, and I think it might have been the first year that I had the game store. So I didn't. I had I, now mm. I've met Eric. He thinks it's funny that I remember this, and he doesn't remember it at all. Yeah. Um. But you know, at the time I was like, I didn't even know who Eric Lang is.
2: Yeah, he, he's good about that. He said on a podcast once that he oftentimes will bring a game to game night and say oh my friend is designing this and needs some feedback can you guys help me out and it's actually his design because he wants people to not think the designer's
0: in the room so they'll be brutally honest that but unbiased he's really
2: response that. yeah mm-hmm. an unbiased response yeah
0: that makes sense Absolutely. okay so we've beat up ben a lot about being a designer i have a couple questions too can we change topics a little bit and talk about ben's other job sure uh which one first of all which one do you consider your main job you just, do you have two incomes, or
2: depends if my boss at
0: Panda's listening to this <laughs> or not? Uh, so Ben also works for Panda Manufacturing, and Panda Manufacturing is one of the largest production companies and manufacturers of board games. That's right. Yeah. So how does how does how does that dual life that you live work I out? It. I love it. Uh, I get to be in the industry
2: full-time, and I get to be in the industry from two different perspectives, Uh, kind of at the beginning of the process, which is the creative, initial creative process of designing board games, and then the actual manufacturing or printing of the games, which happens, I would say, somewhere in the middle of the process. Uh, And so I get to see the industry from two different sides, and they do help each other, right? Designing helps me to be better in my job at Panda, and, and knowing what I know about manufacturing and components from panda helps me to be a better designer as well uh and so yeah i love uh i've been at panda about eight years uh i love its fantastic company uh i love the owners and uh, panda's mission is to play uh, to play and produce the best games in the business and that play part is important too because everybody that works at panda is a gamer Uh, and so we love playing games and we love helping the industry grow and you know we get to Everybody at Panda gets to live out a little bit of their, you know, their hobby and make it a career, which is fantastic.
0: When a game makes it to Panda, when a game comes into you, are there any changes that still happen in manufacturing? Or is the game pretty much the design is now finalized?
2: Um it depends if it's a game that's going to be put on kickstarter by a new designer maybe this is a self-designed and self-published and first game and they come to us a year before they're going to put their game on kickstarter and they say here's i would like an initial quote for my game and here's the concept and here's the components something like that that, that that's far away from being a finished product a lot of times the components will change as the game is still being play tested still being refined and so we get we get changes being made from the from the designer to the game. So that happens quite often. Uh, but Panda also does business with Stonemeyer and Bezier and Red Raven and these other bigger companies that will come to us already with a more finished product saying, okay, we're ready to go. Here's all the files, let's print. Uh, so doesn't happen so much there. But one of the things that, like I said, everybody's a gamer at Panda, and so the project managers that work with the publishers, so our clients are publishers, like Uh I said, Stonemeyer, Bezier. Uh, And since we are gamers and know games, we can often help to make suggestions of, why don't you try using this component, or why don't you try using that component? And so sometimes suggestions that we make do end up in the final product. Ultimately, it's up to the publisher, they're the ones that are making and releasing the game. Uh, But we love being part of that creative process and feeling like, um, you know, I've done project management at Panda and you carry games in the store here that were manufactured by Panda. And some, I look at the shelf and go, oh my gosh, I have, a whole history with that game and I know all the steps that went into manufacturing it and uh, so it's a little bit like Hopefully seeing, not seeing a trauma response. It's it's it more can <laughs> it can be. It can be.
0: but you go into a game store you're triggered just by seeing uh, yeah. games on a yeah. wall. Oh, it, oh no, that one. <laughs> I remember
2: that person. Yeah, that's happens that happens. Yeah. But it's 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 nice anytime you see I think in any walk of life something that you created being out there, you know, it's a moment of Fulfilling
1: feeling. You know that there's been a little tap of your finger, at least on that project. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well,
0: because last week on the podcast, I talked about the stuff I saw at Gen Con that looked really good.
1: Weirdwood Manor.
0: And Weirdwood Manor was on there. And I said something to you about it a couple of days ago, Ben. And you're like, oh, yeah, I'm helping make that one right now. I'm watching it as it's going through the process. And it's, you know, which is it looks really cool to me. And because it Mm -hmm. it reminded me a little bit of Castle Castle of, of Mad King Ludwig. And uh, and you're so when you're going through this and you're going through this process, are you guys playing with prototypes or do you have to just watch this game and go, I want to play this one, I just need to wait Uh, for it to get on the box?
2: We don't really, as like the project managers at Panda, usually get to play the game now in the age of like tabletop simulator, maybe that's possible because our clients are all over the world, right? So we're not, I'm Mm -hmm. working with weirdwood manor guys but they're in vancouver british columbia so i'm not going over to their house to play the game with them right so most of the time we don't play the game um sometimes the publisher will say hey would you hop on tabletop simulator and play with me and you know we're generally happy to do that um but a lot of times we don't know if the game's any good until it comes out. Right? We're printing, we're manufacturing the game. Yeah. They know the rules. They do all the play testing, right? We're just, um, as uh, my colleague Brent likes to say, we're making the donuts. You know, they're bringing us the recipe. So, um, so That's sometimes fair. we play the game, but usually I don't. I don't really know.
0: Are um, there other games though that you're watching the components going? I want to know how this works. I want to play this game.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, we you know the, like they'll upload the rule book, right? I could read the rule book if I want and get some insight, but and of course just talking to them about how does the game play and that does help, right? If you're it's part of the service that Panda offers, is because we are gamers. I can say well. What is the point of this component in the game? What does it do in the game? Oh, well, you might think about using a wood meeple for that instead of using, you know, this, that. The 24-karat right, gold yeah. icon of yeah, the so symbol. We, yeah, It's always helpful to us to understand how the game plays. Uh, to be perfectly honest, we don't have time to play every single game that we are going to manufacture at Panda, but, you know, we're happy to give Seems feedback. Seems like a real drawback. Uh, as we uh, as we can to help out the publishers where and when they need it.
1: So now kind of combining these two thought processes together. Let's say that you're a new game developer. You have now, you, you've come to obviously the Red Raccoon game development nights. You have gotten a few playtests under your belt. You're feeling good. You know you still have some more work to do. What would you say is the point when a game developer should contact somebody at Panda or, or someone like you to say, hey... Mm-hmm. You know, you're just saying sometimes it's a year before they go on Kickstarter that they're already talking to you and getting quotes and things like that. Is is there an easy way in your brain to say, once you reach this step, this is when you should start thinking about the production?
2: Well, I'll answer that question two different ways. First, if you are not planning on self-publishing, if you're just a designer who wants to get your game published by an established Publisher, like right. you're gonna pitch the game to Stone Meyer, Bezier, yeah, Raven or anybody cities, else. between two cities, it's a Stone game. Right. So that uh, I, in in that sense, I think your game is ready to pitch when your playtest when your playtesters start asking you, "When will I be able to buy this?" Mm. That question is always a trigger to me to go, "This game's pretty close to being ready." If they're ready to give me money for it today, then. It's, it's good, and it's ready to pitch. Excellent point. Uh, from a self-publishing perspective, if you are going to put a game on Kickstarter, if you are going to be a publisher yourself and want to self-publish, um, it's good to come to Panda or another manufacturing company, I would say, about a year before you plan to run your Kickstarter. It's always a red flag when somebody asks us for a quote for a Kickstarter that they're planning on running two weeks from now. Mm. Huge red flag. If they haven't done their homework to know how much the game costs before they're going on Kickstarter, they're not doing things in the right order. So uh, I would say at least six months before your game is going to go on Kickstarter, you should have the rules generally set, 90% done. You should have a really good idea of what the components are going to be. You should have an, I- an at least an idea of like what you think the box size is going to be. What do you think the MSRP is going to be? These kinds of things. At that point, it's good to come to somebody like Panda for an initial quote request of how much is this going to cost to manufacture.
0: Interesting. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, if if it's two weeks out, you know, you don't even have your prices finalized for what you're going to charge your end users. Right. You know, we've had a bunch of local folks who have come in here and asked me to look at their prototypes and go through it with them and then I spent a lot of time talking about its shelf presence. What does it look like when it's sitting on the shelf? You know, do you have names on all the edges so that if a customer picks it up and puts it back however we can't control customers picking things up and walking around the store. We'll eventually figure out where they moved it to and and put it back the way we want it, but it could be 20 minutes, it could be five hours, it could be three days before we notice something got moved. So what does that shelf presence look like? I always had a massive issue with the older printings of Pandemic, which is one of the best-selling games of all time, because it was weighted in such a way that it constantly tipped over and fell off the shelf. Mm -hmm. It was, And it would either fall backwards or fall forwards. If it fell forward, now the box is all banged up. If it fell backwards, you couldn't even see it on the shelf because the bottom edge was a barcode and some legal text, but nothing that say the word pandemic anywhere on it. And so I I think if if somebody's not really got their ducks in a row and hasn't talked about that stuff way far in advance, that makes sense.
1: And I know two main offenders that I think we've talked about on the podcast before was the road to El Dorado, which was a beautiful box of, you know, it was very black, had gold lettering.
0: Isle of El Dorado. Is that what it was? Yeah, Isle of El Dorado. Very different game than Road of El Dorado. Fair. Sorry. Excuse me. But it was, yeah, It's a big black box with gold letters on it and no, the first print run had no printing of what the game was inside the box. Yes. There was nothing on it. To So that sounds
2: like a product that the publisher never expected to get into a retail store. I mean, if you're just going to sell it off your website, that's fine. But if you want it to be in a retail store, you got to have the back of the box talking about the game, right?
0: Well, the second print run, they put like a, a color sheet across the box and then put mm-hmm. it underneath of the, the film. So mm-hmm. I think they realized their mistake. And, and maybe you're right. Maybe they never thought that the deluxe edition would have the legs uh, to, to, to be in retail. Right. And because they did a deluxe edition and then they did a retail edition as two separate things and that's probably the best solution for that too. But when they Mm -hmm. realized that there was actually a massive demand for the deluxe edition of the game, Mm -hmm. they went back and made some changes for their second print run.
1: So speaking of just thinking about packaging in general, one thing I definitely wanted to talk to you about, Ben, is differences that Jamie and I both noticed between the search for Planet X and the search for Lost Species, specifically in some of the production designs that were kind of decided about. And actually you can read about inside, I forget if it's a if it's part of the player's book or if it's an insert that is put in there. But you, it seemed like the game was very much focused on trying to be much more environmentally friendly in its creation. Was that something that came from you? Something that you know kind of came up later down the road? Where did that come from?
2: I think it's something that naturally came out of what the theme of the game is, which is conservation, really. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Search for Lost Species also follows the real world search for lost species that really happens. There are species of animals that science has documented that knows exist, but that humans have lost contact with because they're maybe in very remote areas. And so conservationists go out to try to reestablish contact with these species to see how they're doing, to see if they're at risk of going extinct, uh, and to try to ensure that that doesn't happen. Uh, And so the game is about conservation. It's kind of an environmental, friendly theme and so it was just a natural kind of normal conversation that came up with the publisher and they really wanted to to make the game as environmentally friendly the production as possible which i applaud them for you know and they were all for it and i might have even a lot of it was probably their idea right there's no shrink wrapping on the box um instead of plastic bags inside the game there are uh, paper bags inside the game yep. which is more of a renewable resource so they did a really good job of trying to live up to what the theme of the game is promoting which is conservation and they tried to do it with the manufacturing
1: and i will say i don't think any of the pieces suffered from that or or the game's playability like i didn't it felt still very polished just very different than what I was expecting from and some other games. And we both noticed
0: games. it pretty much right off the bat as soon as Absolutely. we were opening it up. Before we even found the insert in here, we're like, oh, this is cool. And then the insert was in there, and we're like, oh, okay, that, that totally makes yeah. sense. Yeah. And, and it's, it's becoming a trend, right? Mm-hmm. We're seeing um, Hasbro has made a commitment to use less plastic packaging. So a lot of, like, the Star Wars figures that we get here used to be the figure behind a plastic window. Mm -hmm. Uh, The whole container was basically plastic, and now those are paper, even to the point like when they released the D&D cartoon figures, those were in boxes that were paper. And uh, Mattel has made a commitment to use less plastic as well. We're seeing it in a lot of places where...
1: Games aren't getting shrink wrapped anymore. They, yeah. they have those stickers that are on the side. That and as long
0: as those tabs are well done on the sides, mm-hmm. I'm fine with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think this is a great idea. It makes my little inner hippie Jamie uh, happy mm-hmm. that we're using less plastic as we go along. I know some of our CCGs have played with this to varying degrees as well, where. Magic the Gathering actually released uh, one set of... God, was it Modern Masters 2017? It was. I think it was one of the Modern Masters where they didn't put them in the cards in the little foil wrappers. They put them in cardboard and with a couple of dots of glue on it. Mm-hmm. And we had an issue where that cardboard was not glued well enough and it was mm-hmm. possible to open them up and then take out the good cards and reseal it again. Mm. So they've... <laughs> You know, Wizards of the Coast is part of Hasbro. They've gone through a few iterations where they're trying to get better about how do we use less plastic on this packaging and still understand that this is a collectible card game. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to segue us, John. You ready for my segue? Ooh, ooh, this is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now you're just trying to impress Ben. You never segue when I'm here. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You're you're 100% right. No. So, Lorcana came out and Lorcana uses cardboard boxes that are not sealed and not plastic wrapped and the boxes come apart so they're not glued very well and the boxes mm. come apart and there have already been instances of people trying to unglue a flap or pull a flap loose take some packs out of it and replace them with other things and so uh, that takes us into I know one of our articles we were going to talk about today was Lorcana and so we've we've seen some packaging problems with Lorcana at yes. the same time, all the cards on the inside are in foil wrap packs or plastic wrap packs. And we're like. Okay. So, like Jake
1: Paul, you realize pretty soon that you bought a bum pack of cards. Oh, God.
0: For those. For, I don't know if you know this story or not. Jake Paul. Not, not Jake Paul. Logan Paul. Was it Logan Paul? It might have been Logan.
1: Yeah, he seems more. Than they're that. the
0: brothers, but either yes. they're both. Interesting. I'll just say that. Um, he bought a sealed. What was. Well, he bought a sealed first edition box of Pokemon and of the very first set and from the date stamping and everything on the box, it was possible that it still could have the error cards, the shadowless Pokemon cards in the box. Went through all this verification process, had multiple companies, they ch- they followed the chain of where the box had been and who had owned it through like 15 years of ownership. They did all this due diligence. And he opened it live on a web stream, and it was full of teenage or no GI Joe cards. GI Joe cards. It was full of GI Joe cards on the inside of it. Wow! It was. I think he paid four or five million dollars for that box, and it was full of GI Joe cards. Yeah.
1: Which Jamie would have been equally excited about. You would have been pretty. Not excited. if I spent
0: four or five million dollars, <laughs> I would have been excited.
1: Well, yeah. that brings us yes into more of a, an article that we have about Lorcanna, uh coming from Chris and Hoffer at Combook. We read so many of his articles. Uh, so, apparently, Disney Lorcana is starting to get a reputation as not necessarily being a, an easy game to come across. I know. Shocking. As, Jamie, what's the number one question you've been asked in the last week?
0: Do you guys have any Lorcana in stock? That's no. it. Over and over and over again. Do you have anything? When are you getting more? Yep. No, we don't have anything. Um, when do we get more? We don't know. That's, those, those are my two questions for the week, yes. And sadly, there's many game stores that are
1: taking the opportunity to profit greatly from the scarcity of these cards.
0: Well, Uh, I don't know that it's sadly. I I think that could be what we talk about, right? It's a, and it's, God, how do we, how do we go about purchase? So there have been, this article says that there's price gouging going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. And. I don't know that I agree that it is price gouging or not. And, and there's price gouging to me, and I think there's plenty of legal definitions, say that it has to be on necessities. Right. right? Price gouging like we had... Toilet paper issues during COVID. We had issues with inhalers. We've had issues with baby formula.
1: Anytime there's an earthquake in California, water skyrockets to you know twenty dollars a bottle. That sort of or thing. Or
0: gasoline. These yep. things that we need as humans for basic necessity. And I don't think that games fall into that. I mean, I think that games are you know fun and they're a g- important part of our lives. And we know that there's important developmental aspects to them that we can have for kids playing games. But I don't know that price gouging is the right word because of the implications of that as well now we have had there are retailers and there are retailers here in central illinois who have absolutely they have charged market pricing on a game as opposed to msrp because manufacturers suggested retailing pricing Mm -hmm. versus market pricing are two very different things and this is It leads to a much bigger conversation about, you know, one of the questions that you guys asked me really briefly before we started this is what's the difference between a Lorcana the TCG, Pokemon TCG? What's the difference between a TCG trading card game versus a CCG, which is a collectible card game? And as far as I have ever heard, there is no difference between those terms whatsoever. You know, these are all ultimately collectibles, Especially when you take something as Disney has cultivated a collectible pins and collectible hats and collectible even Um, uh, my friend John went out of his way to get a uh, it's a it's a water bottle they call them sippers in the theme of they released a new one there for the for the Tower of Terror because of the anniversary year this year. It's pretty cool. But those sort of things have all gone collectible, and people buy them, and then they will sell them for a marked-up price, right? Beanie Babies, as an example, and concert r- tickets. I mean, things oh. happen in all kinds of industries. Yes. Yeah. And so, where is that line of when is it appropriate and when it is not appropriate? And that's a bar- big part of what's going on right now. You know, we're we're we reserved all of our Lorcanna in the store for using it for our in-store events to promote building that community. And we're, we're trying to keep everything reasonable. We're trying to, because as a store, it's very frustrating. I will tell, tell you, as a store owner, it's very frustrating for somebody who comes into the store and then will buy something in the store and immediately put it on eBay for three or four or five times the value of it. So retailers, I think, have been getting trained by some of these people who are flippers to say, we are going to. If somebody's going to profit off of this, why can't we profit off this? Because we did all the work to order it, to bring it in, to educate, to bring this product all the way through to development, to get this to the point where it's in the store and there's hype about it, and somebody else gets to show up one day and just buy it and flip it and make take all the money off of there. And it's, I don't know. There's a, there's a psychology that goes to all of this, and so I'm interested in hearing your guys' opinions as well. So
1: I was actually talking to Ben before we got on the podcast about this, and I one of the biggest thing that kind of stands out to me is the fact that Robin's Burgers, uh, Robin Burger, not that it's Bob's Burger spinoff, uh, <laughs> has in the past focused more on providing games to big department stores before local game developers. Uh, we were talking about Horrified earlier, and all its iterations were appearing in Target before you could even get your hands Minimum on
0: them. Minimum of 90 days. Exactly. Some of them six months.
1: But yet, Lorcana has been pressed to go to gaming stores first, but from what everything I'm hearing, every single game store is getting less than what they specifically requested for. Yeah. And I'm wondering, could there be some... Like connection between those two? Are, are game stores almost being kind of used to create this hype so that when it goes to the bigger stores, people will be able to recognize it more? I, it was just a curiosity thought
0: that I had. So I had a conversation with um, uh, the senior leadership team from Robinsberger when I was in Reno earlier this year. And they told us that they wanted to focus on putting the game into game stores because they think that the success of the game is whether or not people are playing the game, right? Um, Horrified or Disney Villainous or something of that nature, it gets sold one time and it goes off someplace and either a family plays it or a family doesn't play it and that's just kind of the end of it, right? And, And when the game keeps selling, as a case of Villainous, we've got seven expansions, six expansions for Villainous at this point because the game keeps selling and they can make more expansions. But a TCG game, uh, like Pokemon, Magic, Lorcan,a One Piece, Digimon rely on consistent releases. They must have consistent releases and they must have people continually playing the game. All of the CCGs that have been created since I have had the game store that have failed. Were because one, they couldn't get that initial buzz to get enough people to buy in to start with. We're kind of safe on this issue, yeah. but two, they couldn't get product out in sufficient releases where gamer ADD didn't have time. You know, gamer gamers had gave, gamer ADD is a real thing, and they will move on to the next new hottest game, right? So, take for example Star Wars Destinies. It was a combination of a CCG plus a dice aspect to it. I loved it. I thought it was amazing. We did so well with it. We were all having fun. But Fantasy Flight couldn't get the release schedule figured out. And they were only releasing every six to nine months for Destinies. That was too long a period. And gamers had moved on to another game. So the first set was fire. The second set was hot, the third set was warm, by the fourth set everybody had moved on, there was nothing there because now we're two years in and we finally are getting to a fourth set whereas everything else is on a 90 day cadence once a quarter, we get a magic set, a Pokemon set, a Digimon set, a One Piece set, a My Hero Academia set, once a quarter, bam, 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 bam Lorcan is committed to the once a quarter thing, I think it makes it completely different that the big box stores can't keep up with that yeah. And the big box stores don't have anybody to teach. That's, that's a big tricky. part of what we we do here all the time is teach.
1: Now, Ben, from a production, production standpoint uh, in publishing, has there ever been, because a game is hot, it maybe the ne- creator's next game or expansion or something along those lines has kind of come to you and it feels expedited in that way? Or do you feel like that's more on the creator's hands to make sure that things are coming out at a rapid pace if they want to? Get on that ADHD for gamers.
2: You're talking about how, like, Panda plays into this and the manufacturing of a game? Well, there can be choke points at a lot of different places, right? So that six to nine months that it took for more Star Wars Destiny's content to get out, was that because they weren't creating it fast enough and the designers weren't designing it fast enough? Did the factories they were using just not be able to make it fast enough to get it shipped out? That could have been part of it uh, you know, we saw this during COVID, right? There were all kinds of shortages in different products because you can't just go from making a hundred thousand of something to making 3 million of it. Two days later, you just don't have the capacity of the factories to do that. And it takes years to spend up new factories and additional lines on factories to, to produce more of something. So, um, so that can definitely be a choke point, you know. I know you guys talked about um, uh, Spiel de Jars a couple of uh, weeks ago on <laughs> an episode, and I know that the the Spiel committee is really concerned with that, right? Like they will not have a game even recommended for nominated for a win Spiel if they are not convinced that the manufacturer and the publisher working together can get enough of it made so that it can be purchased by people that want the spiel de jaris nominated and winning games uh and so that it it can be an issue on the manufacturing right so for star wars destiny for Lorcana, i'm hoping that years before the product comes out they already have right they have to plan for success and i tell individual new publishers who want to put their first game on Kickstarter, you have to plan for success, right? So Mm -hmm. what's going to happen if you get enough funding to make a 1,000 copies of this? What's going to happen if you get enough funding to make 5,000? What's going to happen if you get enough funding to make 30,000? It's very different distributing 30,000 of something than it is distributing 1,000 of something.
1: I never Um, thought about that.
2: Is your manufacturer, if you want to do a reprint right away, how long is that going to take, right? So uh, yeah, that is something that should be taken into consideration uh, when you are launching a new product. And, and that, that time schedule, definitely the manufacturer has to be a partner with you to having this planned out ahead of time.
0: And that was one of the things I hypothesized uh, with a conversation about LORCANA. I don't remember if it was on the podcast or not, but you know during COVID, we had paper shortages, cardstock shortages specifically where when pokemon exploded into popularity because people were bored and stuck at home and looking at old things again in uh, late 2020 early 2021 pokemon told all everybody all their retail partners like okay well we can't get card stock right now to make more pokemon which only fed into kind of some of the crazy frenzy and some you know there definitely a bubble happened there and then Pokemon Company went out and they bought all the card stock. They bought every card stock that they could find, which then caused Wizards of the Coast issues because there was no card stock for Magic. And it caused other, so it was a cascading effect of, of, of give and take between them. If you're a publishing partner and you've got the contracts for um, Pokemon and or Magic or Digimon or one of these other bigger established IPs, how much? do you give up of that, your capacity in order to make Robinsberger happy, this company that's never made a CCG before, to create a brand new game they got Disney's name behind it and there is absolutely value to that, mm-hmm. but how much of your capacity do you give them out of the gate, is this an issue of did they order conservatively or do they order the max that they were allowed to order to your point, when the public the manufacturer just has no more capacity right now or has no more cardstock, or has no more.
2: Yeah, and another twist on this with board games that makes it a little different, or card games that makes it a little different than other products, is you can't just use any cardstock you need to use a card stock that matches the card stock you used in your last printing. Otherwise, the card is gonna feel different and a player is gonna know when it's a hidden deck and there's hidden information on the front of the card. They're gonna know which card is on the top of the deck because they're gonna see color differences. They're gonna be able to feel it. You can't just go print the same thing at two different factories and expect the color to be exact color matching to be exactly the same. That's really tricky as well. So it makes it even harder for things that have hidden information and most games do in some way to just well we'll just get a new factory
0: to print it you're
2: going to have all kinds of problems if you do that so
0: well and that that has absolutely happened you can see different thicknesses of cardstock over the years if we get a big box of mixed pokemon you can just look at the edges of the cards and go okay this is the the old stuff was on a thicker card stock than the new stuff you can just tell just by looking at the edges sometimes that as well. Additional complication too is not only do you have to have the same kind of card stock, but a lot of them have anti-counterfeiting built in. Magic, for instance, has the, the blue layer in the center of it that if you hit it with a, a, a blue light, you can see that blue layer in the center of it light up as one of those additional layers to know is that a real card or a counterfeit card. So a lot of uh, our collectible card games have these anti-counterfeiting techniques that are built into them because counterfeiting is a real issue. Yeah. And, and I think all this circles back around to this bigger issue of we currently have a game where the demand is crazy right now and the supply is constrained. Economics, anybody who's ever taken a basic economics class is going to tell us That when there's massless demand and no supply, the price is going to go up. So what are the game stores supposed to be doing, right? Right. And that's where this big question is because um, we operate in this world all the time. We have had Magic and Pokemon and Digimon and, and One Piece and everything, all these collectible games. We've had them for 30 years. And one of the things we do here at Red Raccoon is we keep a game at MSRP for the first five days it's been released. After that five days, we move to market pricing. So that's the opportunity for our consistent, our loyal customers, for people who pre-order with us to lock in those pricing ahead of time. And then after that, we move to market pricing because it's a collectible game. It's designed as a collectible game. They put, there's commons, uncommons, rares, super rares, legendaries, and enchanted cards in this game. They designed it as a collectible game from the get-go. The designers knew what they were doing when they did this. They were copying the best of magic, the best of Pokemon, the best of every card game that's out there. And they designed a game where cards were gonna show up Once out of every 24 boxes you might open to get one card out of there. Every time somebody says this is not a collectible game, I'm like, they designed it from the ground up as a collectible game. They knew what they were doing. I I don't know why all of a sudden this game is supposed to be treated completely different than every other Magic Pokemon, everything that's out there. It's not what I do as a business practice, but at the same time, I I don't know. The, 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 The... there's a lot of hand-wringing going on right now. And that that's my perspective. Again, right. I'm always interested in your guys' perspective. Ben, if you have any thoughts on that or not.
2: I have some similar thoughts. And I was an economics major in undergrad, right? So economics is real. Supply and demand is real. Uh, and so I have i have some mixed feelings about this. I, I, I understand that the price has gone up. Like you said, there's more demand than supply. And you would know firsthand how difficult it is to run a friendly local game store and to make profit on that. And you want to make sure that you're sustaining yourself. And I totally understand it's you sell something to someone who goes and puts it on eBay for five times the price. Why are you not capturing some of that? I, I get all of that. I understand all of that. So I don't really fault the friendly local game store for trying to make themselves sustainable as a business. Um, and, and I understand supply and demand. I think on the, you know the consumers part, is there a little bit of uh, keeping up with the Joneses effect here and everybody else has got Lorcana. so I need to get Lorcana and it's got and it got a big hype to it. And we'll see six months from now or a year from now, if people are still playing Lorcana, I don't know. Um, so you know, you have to make a decision as a consumer. Is this worth this extra money that I'm paying for this? Is this something that I am feeling? particularly attached to that I really need. You talked about the difference between wants and needs a little bit earlier. Um, what I get concern of happening is if anyone is intentionally manipulating the market, right? Mm-hmm. If there's an OPEC situation happening where there's a distributor or whomever who's got a ton of this product, but they are intentionally just leaking it out to try to maximize the profit of every sale that's happening. If there's things like that going on to me, that's starting to cross a line into that price gouging that you were talking about or, or intentionally manipulating the market. I mean, we saw this even with a board game with wingspan when it first came out, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. there was oh, yeah. Hot demand for wingspan and nobody could get wingspan. I don't blame a different Jamie, Jamie Stegmeyer, the owner of Stonemeyer Games, for this. I don't think he was intentionally manipulating the market to try to create this buzz for the game. And if Wingspan was sold at an above MSRP by local game stores when there was not a lot of it available. I don't blame people for selling things at a market price that's not a basic good it's not water that you're selling and people are gonna die if they don't get it so i I have a lot of the same feelings that you do that you do about it yeah um one of the things that makes this even a a little bit more difficult or, or different i think is there's a just a ton of work that goes into creating a new trading card game or collectible card games i don't really i don't play them I don't know them but just from the design I mean there are teams of designers that work for years to create this product it's like legacy games even more so than legacy games so when pandemic legacy came out you know was, oh, this is you know there have been more legacy games but we don't see a ton of legacy it is an immense amount yeah. of work to do that and to focus on one game with a couple of designers for a year or two to put out a game that you don't know is going to really sell or not so My point being only the bigger companies that have a lot of resources can even put out a trading card game in the first place. Uh, So I would like to see in the industry to make sure that there are enough healthy companies that are able to put out different types of products. That's the one thing that I'm a little bit worried about is consolidation at the publisher level in the industries. If there's only one publisher or only two publishers big enough to put out a trading card game there's a lot of incentive for them to manipulate things in a way to profit maximize because they don't have any competition and there's nobody else big enough to do it uh and so i think it's so super important that you know kickstarter i'm so glad to see that it has stayed relevant through covid uh that we keep it Easy for new companies to new publishers to enter the market and to put out new products uh, because ultimately if there's only one publisher in the world making board games we're going to have a lot more of these types of problems than than if there are a lot so very encouraging of the mom and pop new publishers to keep coming in keep entering the space and not have the super big companies of the industry colluding in a way to bar
1: access to you know create uh, to enter the market and that's actually a great segue to another article that we were going to talk about today because uh asthma day which is a publisher sure we've now talked about multiple times on this podcast uh doesn't always just cater to the fans of their products they also have to cater to the people that own them as well and the embracer group who uh, bought uh asthma day for i think 1.3 billion i think
0: a few months back i think it was something like 1.4 maybe okay it was it was a lot it was a lot
1: well they the embracer group themselves has suffered kind of a, a two billion dollar not loss but uh one of their deals they were trying to make with the saudi backed savvy gaming group has crumbled apart and apparently that is going to have repercussions through everything that embracer owns and that might also be Asmode. Uh i'm reading an article from uh, Chase Carter at Dicebreaker, and he goes on to describe how it sounds like this might cost, you know, 17,000 jobs because of this falling through of this deal, and companies like Asmodee might be affected by that. Now, it also goes on to say that Asmodee is 70%. Uh, gave a 70% increase to the Embracer Group's Entertainment and Services segment, so they are huge on their list of you know you guys are top sellers. Thank you so much in this division. But at the same time, Asmodee has to answer to them just as much as does, you know, the audience for their games. And as you were saying, Ben, when you have these big names that all of a sudden aren't just, I don't know if I want to say doing it for the fans, but when they are very much focused on the business model of it, I think you're right in saying that, you know, something gets lost in the translation a little bit there.
2: Yeah. I think, uh, I mean, as the industry grows, which I think everybody in the industry says that's a good thing, right? We want the industry to grow. Um, But as it does, it is inevitably going to change. As the industry matures, as there is more money in the industry, there is more opportunity and and incentive for individual people to act in nefarious ways. Mm where they wouldn't have even bothered years ago because there just wasn't enough money involved. Uh, and so as the industry gets bigger, uh, as companies get bigger, uh, we were talking before the podcast started, if you've got a company of five people, and then five years later you've got a company of 500 people, the culture of your company is going to be different. It yeah. just is. Things cannot stay the same as things grow. Uh, and and the tabletop industry is no different. Uh, and so... You know, that's also something that I think people who have been in the industry, working in the industry, but also just fans of the industry, people who go to Gen Con, you know, it's, it's a passion. Um, and as the industry grows, how much of that kind of camaraderie and togetherness, and we're all in this together, do we start to lose because there's a lot of money involved now? Uh, so it's something that I... You know, worry about a little bit, but it is inevitably going to happen. As uh, as the industry is worth more money, decisions get start to be made based on business decisions and not based on my passion for creating this product and bringing joy to people.
1: Ben is staying up at night thinking, okay, if there's a civil war between Asmodee and (laughs) Fantasy Flight, who who do I side with? I don't know. In this war, who's the winner? I understand that.
0: Well, so far, all of your games are are published by companies that aren't affected by Asmodee, right I think stonemeyeers did some of them renegade has brought the lost species ones out right. um, uh, I never say the name the the first of flight is is it Artana first
2: in first in flight which is coming out this fall thanks for thanks for bringing that into the conversation is Artana games that's right and would you tell us a
1: little bit about that game that's the newest one coming out from you correct Uh, Yes,
2: First in Flight will be available this fall. It was funded on Kickstarter a year and a half ago-ish. And, yeah, I'm really excited about this one. It is a push-your-luck deck discovery game. That's how I... That's how I define deck it. Discovery. So deck discovery.
0: We game. talk a lot about the so not uh, deck building. We're discovering.
2: It's a it's a little twist on deck building okay. that, that I'm I'm calling deck discovery. I hope that that term kind of gets picked up and makes it. But uh, at the so the theme of the game it's it's about the Wright brothers and the invention of of uh, the airplane. Uh, and so you are an early aviation pioneer, building an airplane and flying it. And it's a competitive game, and the winner is the first player that can fly think it's like 40, 40 miles and sustain themselves in, in the air for that long. Um, and it's a deck-building game, and the deck represents your plane and how good you are at flying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the discovery part of it is just like the Wright brothers. They didn't really know exactly what was going to happen when they went up in the air the first time. They're like, I think this is going to work, but I don't know, no one's really ever done this before. We think we're going to be okay. So... In your deck at the start of the game, what makes it Deck Discovery is you get some unknown problems inserted into your deck that come in face down
0: that oh. you don't know
2: about when the game starts. Interesting. And everybody gets four of these into their deck, but they don't know which problems they have. So oh, as they I are like that flying, and you, so you shuffle your deck face down, you don't see it. As you are starting your first flight, you are encountering problems with your plane that you don't know are going to show up. And then you have to deal with those problems. So that's the deck discovery part of the deck building. Uh, And throughout the rest of the game, every time you take new like the the more powerful aviation cards that let you fly further, you also have to take a new problem that gets inserted into your deck face down. So you're constantly dealing with these new problems that are popping up seemingly out of nowhere, which is just what happened with the Wright brothers when they were flying on their like, early flights.
1: I really, really like that mechanic. That is an interesting way to add hurdles that can randomize to your gameplay that's genius
0: well and that that theming really works with what i know of artana too because i are they from norway they're from somewhere scandinavia aren't they
2: no no they're they're from they're from here they uh they were originally the two partners one of them was in massachusetts but it was bought out by genius games which are, are familiar with genius yeah. games down yeah, yeah, in st yeah. louis so actually okay. it's a st louis based company maybe you
0: know? it was just the sales guy that i always talk to from artana because the first time i remember running into them was over tesla versus edison right. but all the artana games the most of the games that they put out all have a science and discovery theme right because Tesla versus Edison with uh, AC versus DC power, which and then there was a then there was a, a faster dual version of it, right. and then they had Lovelace versus Babbage and Einstein yep. was a really cool discovery puzzle piece kind of game. Right. I really really enjoy their games and I but I I miss they got bought by Genius Games. We have a ton of their stuff too. Yep. Right. They did some atomic and Ion. And uh, cellular, not cellular, cellulose, oh,
1: cellulose, cellulose, and uh, mitosis. Yeah, Cyt- Jamie, oh, Yeah, mitosis. Jamie loves the science games. Yeah, they're they're I, one I of his do. secret loves. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's cool. So uh, I didn't realize they were with Genius Games. That's that's pretty awesome. So Genius Games is. Is First in Flight published by Artana owned by Genius, or is it going to be published by Genius Games?
2: It's going to be published by Artana. Artana will be the logo on the box, but the Artana brand is now owned by Genius Games. That's cool. So, ultimately, it's published by Genius
1: Games. Well, because it's a history game, it definitely will appear at Red Raccoon when it comes out. However, (laughs) that's still going to be a a few... Days it's away, I, correct? I think
2: it's uh maybe late September when it'll be. It's on the water right now, so I think I think late September they're saying retail. I don't know if they have an exact retail release date yet, but September, October I think it should be should be in stores. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's cool. So I love you, the art style on the box too. Thank on you. The cards.
1: So if you're looking for a game to somehow bridge that gap between uh, now and when that game comes out, we can definitely take a look at the new hotness that is at Red Raccoon and talk about some of the new games that are there, which, if you don't know, I sent you a, a Facebook Messenger that has the photos of the new hotness upstairs. And there's a there's one game that you know really caught my eye, and it's this... A search for Lost Species that is on the new hotness. It looks really fun. I think people should definitely give it more of a try if they haven't I have already. a good feeling about that yeah, game. Yeah, me too. Definitely. I
0: feel like it's a winner for me.
1: Yeah, buy one for everybody in your
2: family. <laughs> Great Christmas gift. <laughs> Great Christmas gift, whatever. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Did you see um, one of the games that I am interested in and checking out that, j- that just came in the other day is My Island. It's from Cosmos. It's a sequel to My City. And My City was like a sleeper hit, and then it got, uh, you know, it kind of dribbled out of the store. And then it got all of a sudden hit with a ton of nominations for Game of the Year and stuff when it came out. Then you couldn't get My City anywhere. It goes right back to all the supply chain stuff we were talking about. Um, My Island looks super interesting to me. as a co-op kind of developing and working through the resources and stuff on the island as you go on there. And it's a legacy game. Every three get rounds, you open up an envelope and it gives you new challenges that you have to overcome so your island will get customized and developed over time as you play it. Looks Looks pretty cool. I'm, I'm definitely interested in checking that one out.
1: You were talking about that on the Facebook video you did yesterday, yeah. but you also talked about After Us, which is a game about after the fall of human civilization, who's there to pick up the pieces, correct?
0: Primates. Correct. Primates and the, your, your primates, your, your tribe evolves and grows depending on how the you you go about trying to recruit new members for your tribe and how do you pull them in and how do you uh, you know develop your team out as it goes along.
2: I got to play that at Gen Con. Have you, you played you? it yet? No I haven't yet. Yeah it's a simultaneous deck building game. Oh. Which is great. I'm all for simultaneous gameplay Game play in traditional mechanics you and never have
0: to wait for somebody else to take their turn you don't to have to wait turn. for
2: somebody else to take your turn everybody takes their turn at the same time and then uh, when you're adding new cards to your deck you're choosing which piles to draw from, and they're face-down piles. So like, I'm going to draw from the blue deck or the red deck or the yellow deck, and those decks do different kinds of things. So you don't know exactly what card you're getting into your deck, but you have an idea, okay, I'm getting a red card, which comes with these general kinds of powers. Okay. But everybody's kind of making that decision and just taking the cards into their deck at the same time, so you don't have to wait. Uh, so it you know, has very little downtime, which I liked about it.
0: Okay, that's cool. That makes me want to try it even more because I hate sitting and waiting for my turn sometimes. (laughs) Uh, I did get a chance to play Wild Tiled West. That was a game that we knew was coming out from Dire Wolf, and I got a chance to play that with Chris James um, and Michael last weekend. Chris, of course, used to work here, and we, we played tons of games all the time. And uh, and you you were hanging out with Chris at the Board Game Geek Hot Games Library um, at GenCon. Yeah, we
2: played after us together there. Actually, oh, is that where it was? <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, Wild Todd West was it was cool. It was a, it's a polyomino game where it it felt like there was some some elements of patchwork where you're trying to get these pieces and fill in your board. Uh, and score as many points as possible. There was definitely some elements of like barren park in there, where you're trying to build out all the rides for your your amusement park. This one is of course the old west, and so it's um, you know pickaxes to increase your income levels, and you've got to deal with uh, uh, highwaymen. They, they don't call them highwaymen. There's a name for them. I can't remember. Banditos. I think there's some sort of bandit or something. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was really cool, but the the main mechanic that was new and innovative with it was, it's a drafting game where you're drafting those tiles, based on the fact that you roll, uh, the tiles go onto a, a god it got to be a four layer deep board, to hold all the tiles, which makes for great storage after the game. But you roll the dice, and there's in the game we played with three players, you roll. Three D20s and two D8s, and they slot into the, the D8s go across the top and bottom of the board, the D20s go down the sides, and you could draft any of the tile pieces closest to one of those dies. But if let's say there was a number seven rolled on a D8, if I took the tile there, I also took the die, which made that unavailable for either of you to draft that round because I already used that slot. So then you had to deal with the other dice that were rolled. So there was really cool drafting randomization element to it and turn order still was important as well. You know, we had a good time with it. It was, it was a lot of fun.
1: Very cool. Uh, I do see on the shelf that we have some new Squishables offerings, which I am always a huge fan of. Uh, We have the tie-dye Grim Reaper.
0: The tie-dyed ones that they've been releasing, they they release one or two each year, have been ridiculously popular. Every time.
1: And then to accompany that, we have the uh, Grim Reaper, Behumet, and Smiley Rainbow backpacks.
0: We had uh, Plague Doctor and Plague Nurse backpacks from them last year, and they sold out almost instantly. And so these are just fun, cool, stitched character backpacks. And uh, I don't know how long they're going to last. Yeah. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to try to order more. And they're going to be like, uh, no, dude, we, we don't have any more. You should order more the first time out. I feel like they're,
1: squishables are like the high class of stuffed animal. And, you know, the, the casual collector will go after the squishmallows, the, the pillow-like ones. But those who know, go squishmallow. Or, or squishables. Excuse me. <laughs> Gosh, that that was hard to say. That was a that was a lot. It was hey, a good. It was a good attempt, John. Jamie, what what are some reasons that they can come in and see some of this new hotness this week?
0: Well, this upcoming week, well, one, it's going to be cool enough out this week where you don't feel like you got slapped in the face with a sweaty T-shirt as soon as you step out your door.
1: Don't know what that's like. I've been yeah. conditioned to this I mean, lifestyle. was now.
0: sixty-one this morning, that's forty yeah. degrees difference than two days ago, right? it was a, it was 99 degrees and now it's 61 in 3 and 2 two days the mother nature man uh, lots of stuff going on this weekend the big thing this weekend is wilds of eldraine the brand new magic set drops so we'll have pre-releases on Friday and Saturday night but you can also come in just to see we are we moved into decorating mode we are trying yeah. to get All the artwork and pictures and collectibles that I've built up over the years, we're trying to get them hung back on the walls. So you can, every time you come in, you're going to see some new stuff up. I got three of the dragon heads up the other day. People are like, why'd you leave a gap? I'm like, because in Tiamat order, (laughs) the white and the green one aren't here yet. So if we're going to keep the heads in the order of Tiamat's heads, they need the white one to go there and the green one to go over there. Um, Tons of artwork going up. uh, Lots of games. And um, also Zeta Coffee just got a fresh restock on some new ice cream flavors. Oh, that's dangerous. It is dangerous to work here at the store now. I'm happy that they got new flavors. I'm sad that there's a production halt or whatever where they can't get the blueberry waffle cone back, because that's still what? my favorite.
1: I haven't even gotten to try that one yet.
0: Well, I got the last scoop yesterday. You monster. <laughs> <laughs> he added some new flavors though, so okay, I'll t- I'll there'll take be a new look things today. to explore. The Zeta Coffee uh, being added to the store has been interesting for us as the the employees who work here all the time. What do you think? Any thoughts on coffee and ice cream and candies in the store? I mean, you know,
2: it gets me to. If I'm in downtown Bloomington, I'm like, oh, I'll go kill some time. It's just one more reason to walk into Red Raccoon, right? So, I mean, that's good for that's good for Red Raccoon. But I've had, I haven't had any ice cream here, but, you know, I come in for like a tea, uh, you know, a few times. Are you going for the hot teas or the boba teas? Uh, hot teas, usually. I just had my first boba tea like a few months ago. I had never had one before. What, where where are you good. at on? And I'm yeah. going to have another one. But, okay. You know, I'm on this once every... Forty years uh, passed. I'll have <laughs> another one. It was really good. That's but. like uh,
0: Paula Dean had. She was the person credited with creating where you make a hamburger and then oh. you use Krispy Kremes as the bun. Right. She called it the Sun. The Ladies Sunday Day Sunday Delight. I think is what she called it. She was on NPR talking about it, and she's like, everybody's allowed one per lifetime.
1: Right. That is the serving size.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh.
1: Well, now that I'm extremely hungry, uh, before we go, we are, have gotten to the habit of trying to throw out some other geek things for people to check out that we're interested in and that we would like to share with our listeners. I'm going to go ahead and continue my series of the Simon R. Green universes that you can get indulged in. We've talked about uh, Supernatural, Private Eye. Uh, we've talked about uh, Game of Thrones in space. Uh, those would be the uh, Nightside novels and the Mistworld novels. Uh, But, oh, excuse me, Deathstalker novels. The Mistwalker, which I guess I'll go ahead and do that one uh, a little bit too, there's actually a prequel series to the Deathstalker novels called Mistworld, and there's a trilogy of those that give you some preface history on if you read both sets of the Deathstalker uh, novels there's a lot here, guys. You just need to Wikipedia, Simon R. Green, you will see it all, because what I'm going to talk to you about today is we're going to go all fantasy. There is the Blue Moon series, which basically gives you your basic uh, fantasy legend, where the very beginning of it is about a second-born prince, and because he's a second-born prince, all he is is dangerous to his empire, because he could, you know, one day want the throne, and has a right to it, and might fight his brother. So... His family keep on sending him on suicide missions, trying to get him to die in order to uh, make sure that there's only just one king and there's no dispute over who should be ruling. And he ends up meeting a very feisty princess and a very angry dragon, Uh, and they end up having some (laughs) adventures together. Uh, that are unconventional, to say the least. And once again, there are elements of this series that will then flow into another medieval series we can talk about next time, which is called Hawk and Wolf. And it's about uh, procedural crime in a fantasy timeline. Uh, But also there's elements of it in the something from the Nightside series, because they talk about certain gods in this uh, blue moon forest world that show up in the actual Nightside
0: series as You're well. You've just taken yourself down a whole rabbit hole, haven't it's you? It's insane. I have
1: loved these books for so long. This is the... You've now figured out why I started this podcast. I was just waiting for the day to talk about Simon R. Green.
2: You have to make a video... Yeah, everyone's video see a big smile on your face when you're talking about oh, this. It's,
1: yeah, yeah, it's amazing, and the man has like retired series and then created news. It's yeah, okay. So, I'll do a video so novel on that later.
0: I, you know what, you, you're talking about video. What I see in my head when John's talking about it, because you guys can't see how animated his hands are, like <laughs> trying right. to connect the lines together. That meme that goes around from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where he's got the whole corkboard with all the lines. Who drawn. is
1: Pepe Silvia? Yes, who exactly. is Pepe Sylvia?
0: Exactly. Uh, okay so for my media one this week uh, I have two of them and I'll go super fast on them one is I watched both episodes one and two of Ahsoka came out this week and they're awesome if you're a Star Wars fan you gotta watch them right Uh, great lightsaber battles uh, apparently history making in the first uh, woman versus woman lightsaber battle I did not realize that I never paid attention but apparently it's a, a big thing And I still can't imagine anybody that you could cast that would make a better Ahsoka than Rosario Dawson. She was amazing. Yeah, so those were great. I don't want to give away any spoilers other than just go watch them, right? The other one is I am almost done, and I spent extra time doing chores around the house because I do chores while I listen to audiobooks, and I'm almost done with The Book of Accidents by Chuck Wendig. Oh, yes. He did, uh, he's done a ton of novels over the years. I first twigged on him because he did the Star Wars Aftermath trilogy, mm-hmm. which is essential if you want to know how the heck we got from Raiders, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> <laughs> That's the story I want yeah. to know. Raiders how did we get from Raiders of the Lost Ark to F- A Force Awakens? That's an interesting story. <laughs> how did we get from Return of the Jedi to... A Force Awakens, right? Episode mm-hmm. six to episode seven. This trilogy will solve so many p- questions people have. Um, but this book is a complete
1: left field. Yeah,
0: so different than um, any of his other writings that I've I've read. It's 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 almost horror. It's, it's pretty much horror. It's, it's got it, it, some Cthulhu-esque elements and multiple dimensions. And you spend a whole lot of the book going, what the heck is happening here? <laughs> and now I'm at the, the apex where it's all come together. And it's just, yeah, I've really enjoyed this one too. So something completely different. I normally would not read a horror novel or listen to a horror novel. And this one has just had me hooked.
1: I like the spooky. You got, me, you got yeah. me hooked in on this. All right, Ben, what do you got for our listeners?
2: I'm going to go non-gaming, non, non non, <gasps> non tabletop not non-even-digital. Oh, I'm going to give a little shout-out to History.
1: Oh, uh, no. I'm a,
2: I'm a history nerd, and uh, I volunteer at the History Museum here in uh, Bloomington-McLean County History Museum. Oh, interesting. And it's an awesome museum. If you like history and local history, you should come check it out. And uh, a couple other history things I want to throw out. Uh, well, one, That's digital. Uh, If you're not familiar, if you like history, world history, military history, uh, you should check out um, Hardcore History, which is an amazing podcast. Fantastic. Uh, If you haven't heard of that, check out um, Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Uh, He only does about two podcasts a year. They're about five hours long each, and they are just for road trips, they're just for plane rides, just amazing. and then also the, the History Museum is doing uh, their cemetery walk, which is in uh, uh, September, late September and early October um, in Evergreen Cemetery. And there's actors portraying famous people from McLean County's history. I didn't know uh, and that. You can go through the really? cemetery and learn about people, uh, some of which that are, are buried there uh, that that influenced uh,
0: McLean County. So, uh, yeah, I just
2: just history it's, shout out it's today. It's great. It's absolutely
0: right. worth going. Obviously, you have to be local to go to that one within a couple of hours with us of us, but it's absolutely great. They use the best of all of our community theater players mm-hmm. uh, to represent all these people um, including, you know, for instance, one is the little girl that inspired The Wizard of Oz. Right? that, that uh, was it was written about her. Um, there's tons of circus performers that have been buried here because Bloomington has a very storied history with circuses wintering here. When they were, as they were at the touring circuses, they would winter here in, in town. Um, and and just, there's amazing stories about people that are out there that have actually made and shaped Central Illinois and in McLean County it's pretty cool it's worth going I well, think it's like 15 bucks or 12 bucks yeah it's
2: not expensive uh, for a ticket and and totally worth whatever they charge for tickets there's uh, you know they should be as expensive as Lorcana packs that's what I think uh, <laughs> That valuable. yeah
1: well before uh if we spend another five minutes talking about history I do have to label this as an educational podcast so with that uh this wait, episode wait, wait,
0: I want to tell a story real quick can I tell a story I know Uh, we're trying to wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. Okay. We got we got space on the on the machine. Hit it. Okay. I when we first opened the bakery, everybody that listens to this, I think knows Kelly and I had a bakery in downtown for 13 years. We were the only breakfast place, and we had a contract to provide breakfast to the Museum of History. uh, When they would do every year, they would do this thing where they would bring in executives and say, "This is why local history is important at the museum." to basically try to say, this is why you should help us continue to exist, right? Financial support from some of our biggest companies here in town. And so I would have to, Kelly would make the breakfast, I'd help her make the breakfast, she would have to leave and go be a school teacher. So I would take all the breakfast over to the museum and have to serve it everything and then I would have to sit there and wait and I couldn't clean it up until it was all done. Greg Coos was the executive director of the museum and he could have told the same story every day because it was always different people there. Instead, because he's Greg, every day he told a different bit of history. So over the course of all the years at the museum, I got all this amazing history knowledge about <laughs> Bloomington Normal, which is a place I did not grow up here, right? But I know more about local history of Bloomington Normal <laughs> than most people who did grow up here because I had to sit and listen to Greg, and he's a fascinating speaker. So there is so much cool stuff over there. Just another plug for the museum. We do, and we've partnered with them on a lot of stuff over the years too. I hope- Go ahead.
1: And hopefully, many years to come. Yeah. But with that, our episode is going kind to of come to a close. I'd like to thank Ben for joining us today. This has been absolutely fantastic, Ben. You're always welcome if you want to come back on. Thanks for having uh, me. It was a lot of fun. Yep. And maybe once we get uh, your new game out in the shelves, we'll have to have you uh, back to talk about it a little you're bit right? more. Uh, I want to thank Jillian Mesner for the use of our theme music and feel free to tell us how we're doing by leaving a comment on the podcast app of your choice. Uh, come right to the source by emailing us at info at or join our discord where a lot of the questions that we brought today actually came from people on the discord. So yes, absolutely join us, become a participant within our podcast and we hope that you enjoyed listening uh, until next time. Keep playing.
0: Bye guys.